Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson Eflin. Thank you for joining us for issue 7 of our Comics Bracket. This week we will be discussing 1994's The Mask and 1994's The Crow. There's no way around it this week. We're going to talk about sexual assault stuff pretty consistently. Both these movies have issues with that. If you don't want to deal with that, that's totally fine. Feel free to nope out. We'll see you at the credits. You're on your own, folks. We'll meet you at the finale. Yeah. Part of it is to do that both these films are 25 years old or so. These movies are very much of the 90s. Yeah. The Mask is the 90s by day and The Crow is the 90s by night. Also, both of the comics that they come from are super edgy. It's really appropriate comparing these two. I'm glad that the bracket was seated this way. So without further ado, let's get into The Mask. Stanley Upkiss is an unlucky nice guy working as a bank clerk in Edge City. Things begin to change when Tina Carlisle steps into the bank. The two flirt as Stanley answers her financial questions, but Tina is there casing the bank for her boyfriend, Dorian Tyrell. Later that evening, Stanley tries to reconnect with Tina at the Coco Bongo Club, where she performs, but can't make it past the bouncer. As Stanley walks home, he finds a mask floating in the city's harbor and brings it home. He soon discovers that the mask transforms him into a green-headed cartoon character. Stanley uses this newfound power to get even with those who have wronged him, but the next morning is questioned by both the police and a reporter, asking if he has any information about the mask. Stanley, scared by his actions, tries to get rid of the mask, but it returns on its own. He succumbs to temptation and dons the mask again, this time robbing the bank where he works, foiling Dorian in the process, and goes to dance with Tina at the Coco Bongo. This causes a confrontation between the mask and Dorian, and a shootout starts in the club, but the mask flees before the police arrive. The police start to put the clues together, and they tail Ipkiss for the day. Tina comes back to the bank to talk to Stanley, and he reveals that he's friends with the mask, and agrees to arrange a meeting between them. At the rendezvous, Stanley transforms again, trying to secure a relationship with Tina, but is rebuffed and then captured by the police. The mask escapes via bardic performance with the help of the reporter Peggy. However, Peggy betrays him and hands him and the mask over to Dorian. Dorian takes possession of the mask and hatches a scheme to overthrow his boss. He literally tosses Stanley into police custody, then takes Tina hostage, and then heads to the club to sabotage a charity event and kill his boss, Nico. Stanley escapes from jail and heads to the club to stop Dorian. Tina manages to trick Dorian into removing the mask, and he and Stanley start fist fighting. Eventually, Stanley gains control of the mask and saves Tina and the club from a bomb. The mayor calls Stanley a hero and says Dorian Tyrell was the mask all along, causing the police to drop the investigation. Stanley tosses the mask back into the ocean, and he and Tina kiss. Meanwhile, we're in Detroit, Devil's Night, 1993. Eric Draven's been shot. His fiance Shelley, is rushed to the ICU. Officer Albrecht tells Sarah, their young friend, that she'll be alright. They both know he's lying. A year later, a crow pulls Eric from his grave. Disoriented, he returns home, processes as best as he could, then sets out for revenge. He methodically tracks down and kills his killers, with magic powers and bullets. Lots of bullets. One was giving drugs and sex to Sarah's mom, and Eric scares her straight. Albrecht pieces together what's going on, but realizes that he can't do much against the Revenant, so he and Eric just sort of bond. Albrecht sat with Shelley for 30 hours as she died, and he kind of gets it. Eric goes after Top Dollar, the man who ordered the hit. Top Dollar's sister-slash-lover somehow knows that if she killed the crow, Eric becomes mortal again. They kidnap Sarah to lure Eric into a trap and do just that. Albrecht shows up to save the day, but it's not quite enough. Just as Top Dollar is about to deliver the killing blow with a katana, because, of course, Eric floods his head with Shelley's pain as she died, which causes him to fall to his death. His job done, he gives Sarah Shelley's ring on a necklace, then figuratively and also literally goes to his grave, where Shelley's spirit comes to welcome him home. Like we said, both of these are very much products of the 90s. Let's go ahead and get into The Mask. I'm going to preface this, kind of like you in musicals, 
Jim Carrey comedy isn't really my thing, so I'm probably going to be harsher on this than I strictly need to be. To give some perspective, I had a counter on my notebook that was just, why is Jim Carrey like that? That got up to about 25 tallies. On the other side, I am tentatively a Jim Carrey fan. I was definitely a huge fan when I was a kid. However, as I'm viewing some of the material that I watched from him at that age, I'm beginning to realize some of it's problematic. And, and I still do enjoy his comedy, even some of his more serious roles, but... Some of his work has left a bad taste in my mouth. Here, there are a lot of issues with consent and sexual assault and just in general, really toxic ideas about relationship dynamics. Stanley Ipkiss at one point literally wrote a letter into the newspaper. You printed one of my letters last year. Nice guys finished last. To like a Ask Peggy column. And she seems taken with him. Like she seems to think, oh, this is a great guy. The movie specifically mentions how much mail she got about that letter. Do you realize how much mail we got about that letter? I mean, there are literally hundreds of women out there looking for a guy just like you. It's not quite an incel power fantasy movie, because I don't think incels were quite a thing yet. <laughs> hey, so weird coincidence, The Mask was filmed in 93, and the community that would go on to create the term incel was actually created also in 93. Uh, the first forums for that. And I want to make some joke here about how The Mask is such a minefield of icky gender politics stuff that it somehow birthed incels into being, but... Originally, the woman who created the idea of being an incel was actually a relatively noble effort to explore frustrations surrounding sexuality and what was done in the modern era. And she's on record of being very upset with how bad what she created has become. So there's your history lesson for today. Quite an incel power fantasy movie, but it definitely feels like it. As the film opens, we are shown a conversation between Stanley and one of his female co-workers. He's trying to woo her and got, I got those concert tickets you wanted. However, she has a friend coming into town and is wondering, is there a way to get a third ticket? Stanley's like they're sold out and in the kind of pretty decent thing to do, tells her, why don't you just go with your friend? In isolation, that is a good, decent thing to do. However, when you juxtapose that with all of the other things going on with Stanley, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Because it's one of the first things we see, and because of the way the dialogue plays out, it feels more like the scene isn't telling us that he's a good person, it's more telling us that he doesn't have a lot of spine to him, that he's a bit of a pushover. Yeah. Honestly, Stanley Ipkiss to me feels kind of like a Buffy villain. Not like a seasoned villain, just like someone from a one-off episode. You know, frustrated nice guy gets an evil demon mask and proceeds to have power fantasies before someone has to punch him until he goes away is, I'm pretty sure that happened at some point. I mean, that's very much what is going on in the comic. Although it's a little bit weird because in the comic, Stanley already has a girlfriend and he actually buys the mask from like an antique curio shop for her. That's a very different dynamic. Exactly. They still try and set him up as spineless, but it kind of goes to show how shoehorned in the romance subplot is in all of this. I mean, I don't particularly blame them. You had to fix the plot from that comic. It's terrible. Back in 1994, there was not nearly the cultural baggage associated with the term nice guy. We were kind of getting there, but not to the point where it is today. I get what you mean about trying to add in a romance to create more plot, but 
honestly, the romance they added is kind of gross. And here's where we're getting to some of the like content warningy stuff. The line between line between Tina falling for Stanley and Tina having her consent subsumed by the magic of the mask is a bit thin and kind of unclear at some points, and it's really gross. We're we're treated to a few scenes, specifically the Bardic performance, where the mask has some capacity to force others to do its bidding. The, the mask makes it so that a female cop is singing backup vocals to him during Cuban Pete. And it, it kind of calls into question a lot of what's going on with Tina when she's interacting with the mask. There's even one point where I think it's Dorian, uh, you know, so like, hey, what was up with you making out of the mask and her singing? Did it look like I had much of a choice? While she might have been lying, it's also n- not explicit that she wasn't. There is some wishy-washiness with that, considering the way she rebukes him at the Pepe Le Pew scene in the park, because it's just a Pepe Le Pew parody. He's even wearing the stereotypical beret and black and white striped shirt and scarf. Right. I think a lot of the issues with the relationship dynamics are not even necessarily reminiscent of what was going on in 1994, but what was going on in the Looney Tunes era that the mask character is so heavily based off of. It's apparent in the comic a little bit, but the mask is completely psychotic there and it's much more grotesque, so it's obfuscated. But here they're drawing direct parallels to Tex Avery cartoons. Stanley is watching them on VHS at night. He has a figurine of the wolf character from those cartoons. And a lot of the way the mask acts when Stanley is wearing it is very much informed by those cartoons. So a lot of the misogyny and questionable understanding of consent is grandfathered in from that era. Those cartoons were almost exactly 50 years old when the movie was being made. It's pretty apparent that he's stuck in the past a bit, but the movie doesn't seem to realize that that's not a great thing. Or rather, it seems to realize that's something he should overcome, but doesn't seem to fully understand what it is about that that he needs to overcome. It's also a little weird how that Art Deco design that was also prominent in that period gets used throughout the film as well in the architecture the coco bongo club it's definitely not from the comics so i'm guessing they just kind of really leaned heavily into looney tunes and i mean the design also does have shades of the tim burton batman i get it Mm -hmm. i do like the design the design is generally pretty good and most of the way that the mask exists in this world looks pretty good because of how cartoonish everything the mask does and a lot of the effects are they don't feel out of place they've actually aged reasonably well because you're not really supposed to consider them real they're this weird fantasy that's not to say that they necessarily look good but i don't think overall they detract from the viewing experience although when the mask is on the dog it's kind of unfortunate it makes me think of scrappy-doo from the live action scooby-doo movie oh yeah yeah It's also not quite clear exactly what it wants us to take away from all of the relationship dynamics and whatnot that's going on in the film. And the weird, like, mask as toxic masculinity metaphor that doesn't quite... I wouldn't even give them the credit of mask equals toxic masculinity. It's much more that the mask is your id. You're tossing out your superego and you're just 
full-born id. The movie almost literally spells it out in the scene where Stanley goes to talk to the doctor, played by Ben Stein. He specifically calls out, My book is about masks as a metaphor, Mr. Epcus. After reading the comic, it's much more prevalent there because of how grotesque everything is, and we see more characters put on the mask. Stanley Ipkiss, it puts on the mask only a couple times. He's able to kill about two dozen people while he does it but by about i think issue two or three he's dead already oh dang yeah and then his girlfriend turns the mask over to lieutenant kellaway who is investigating all those things he's getting stymied by a corrupt da and he puts on the mask to do police work and get even with criminals but the film tries to play that up you can see that with the way stanley is always so hesitant to put on the mask he tries to get rid of it he's scared of what happens when he puts it on and it does manifest very differently for him than for Dorian. Mm-hmm. When Stanley puts it on, it kind of has that like Looney Tunes cartoon vibe, whereas when Dorian puts it on, it looks like the judge from Buffy. Demon jaw thing, red eyes. Mm-hmm. And it makes a lot of sense. Originally, when New Line was developing this film, they wanted to go in a more horror direction. It was actually supposed to kind of supplement the flagging Nightmare on Elm Street series. And this definitely feels like Nightmare. And I could see this very easily having the slasher vibe to it. Looking at the comic, I think that direction makes a lot more sense than what we got here. But the film is trying to have this commentary about like giving into the temptation and your innermost desires and trying to keep your id in balance. In another movie, that might work, but it's not here because the parts where Stanley is wearing the mask are the most fun parts of the movie. They're the most entertaining and we're associating this thing that is supposed to be bad, that is supposed to be detrimental with this is funny, this is exciting, this is interesting. And it completely defeats the message that the film is trying to send. And if Stanley hadn't become the mask for a little bit, he wouldn't have learned gumption and been able to stop an explosion at a nightclub and make out with a hot lady. He very much needed the mask to better himself. Bit of a stretch, but it almost feels more narratively structured like a boy in his magical ex narrative. Dweeby kid meets dragon, dragon teaches him how to do kung fu or whatever he saves the day, the dragon flies off to teach some other kid kung fu. I was thinking another movie from around the time, The Page Master. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, why don't we have more Page Master movies? How would you like to curl up with a good book? We're being pretty mean. Uh, There is a thing that I really like. So the villain, well, I guess he's not really the villain. The villain. The antagonist's antagonist. Yeah. The big boss guy brings the villain into his office where he's playing like a digital golf thing and makes him lie on the floor, hold the golf tee in his mouth and uses that to practice his swing. It's really intimidating. It's really stressful. It's really specific, but it gives me a sense of who this villain is. I was really into that. I'd love to see that scene in a different movie. There's actually a lot of good framing in this film. The first time that Stanley puts on the mask in his apartment, they shift the camera 
down to this really low angle and we're kind of looking up at Stanley holding the mask. And the way that scene is shot is actually in really compelling and it really gets across the weight of what exactly is going on. Yeah, this film does have a decent amount of nice shots, scene construction. Great gowns, beautiful gowns. And there's a lot of humor that is sort of blink and you miss it. During the scene where he's making balloon animals for the gang during the first night, in one of his pockets, he pulls out a used condom. Sorry, wrong pocket. There's also the morning after when we're seeing the outside of the mechanics. Used to be like Ripley's auto detailing or something like that, but the sign is damaged, so now it just says rip off. Uh, oh, that scene though. So that's kind of was the pivot point for us for this film. Stanley went there as the mask the night previously. He makes a comment and then we see the two mechanics very frightened and maybe hear some screaming, but we don't find out exactly what happens till the next morning. We get there, the cops are there, there's paramedics, and they're wheeling one of the guys out and there's a tailpipe shoved up his tailpipe. There's no way around it. That's sexual assault. Yep being played up for laughs because it's happening to men and specifically men who have been shown to be not quite on the up and up. And it is a bit of comedy that while socially acceptable in 1994 is definitely not here. Yeah. For reference, a similar thing is done by the main villain for season one of American Horror Story. If you want to have a look at how things have shifted, even Ryan Murphy knows this is wrong. Ryan Murphy. A thing I will praise, in that first scene when Stanley puts on the mask, he runs into his landlady who has one of those like nighttime face masks on that's also green. That was a a fun visual gag. You had a good joke movie. I, I, I applaud you. I dug a lot of the humor in this movie. That may be because I remember watching it quite a lot as a child. I remember us having on VHS. Part of me is a little horrified that uh, my parents let me watch this when I was a young child um, at this point, but uh, what you gonna do? But I'm not quite sure how much of the humor would be funny divorced from the nostalgia. There, There's no way for me to separate that at this point, unfortunately, so I can't really comment on it. Yeah. As someone who doesn't have a lot of nostalgia for it, there were a few good jokes. A lot of it didn't work for me, although a lot of this is kind of wet humor and I'm more into dry humor. I do really appreciate how made of rubber Jim Carrey's face is. Even when he's not in the mask makeup and everything, he's incredibly expressive. Yeah, they cast a cartoon character for this, which was a good choice. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, I will mention that the prop work is excellent, that the actual prop for the mask is incredibly iconic. It works really well for the film. It's also much better designed than the mask that they have in the comic. Yeah. There's one last dig I have to make. So in this film, we get Detective Doyle, who is this kind of dopey, I love donuts sort of cop next to Lieutenant Kellaway, who is trying incredibly hard to do police work and put away bad guys. The actual good guy of the film, yeah. Yeah. In the comic, Kellaway has a completely different partner, uh, Detective Lionel, who is black. So in addition, they whitewashed a character and completely removed any interesting qualities that they had. Yay. Great. I think I am done talking about the mask now. 
Mm. Let's move on to The Crow. So The Crow is one of those movies where the story around it is maybe more well-known than the story itself. The protagonist is Brandon Lee, son of Bruce Lee, guess that Bruce Lee, who also died famously, and there were a lot of questions surrounding that and a lot of rumors. As far as we can tell, very normal, reasonable medical things, but... A lot of superstition built up around it. And then when Brandon Lee was shot in a scene where his character was shot, it raised a lot of questions, especially with all the mysticism and, and supernatural stuff in the narrative. And it's even weirder that another person who played the crow died in, uh, as part of the making of the TV show that was kind of a remake of it. I'm not necessarily saying the crow had a curse, but I am saying there's a certain dark energy to it. And I'm not saying that some god of night and crows and blood and murder demanded sacrifice to make a good movie, but I'm not saying that didn't happen. The Crow is, uh, a lot. Like, it's set in Detroit, but honestly, I feel like this should be the one set in Edge City. The Edge City moniker makes a lot more sense in the comic. But yeah, this is just as edgy. It's just edgy in a very different way. Lots of guns, lots of explosions, lots of, oh, the horror of the, the streets. Huh? That said, it is nowhere near as edgy as the comic is. There's an amazing scene in the comic where Eric walks into a nightclub where the, some of the bad guys are gathered recites Emily Dickinson's Because I Could Not Stop Her Death and shoots a bunch of dudes. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, <sighs> he says amazing lines like, I know pain at the molecular level. It pulls at my atoms, sings to me in an alphabet of fear. I am the boiling man. Come to break the bones of your sins. What we're saying is, this movie and franchise are more like Spawn than Spawn is. This movie is what Spawn wanted to be. Yeah. This movie is what Vampire the Masquerade wants to be. That said, I get why this comic was so edgy. James O'Barr, the writer, wrote it as a way to process his fiance's death by a drunk driver. So, Ooh. yeah. And writing an edgy 90s comic in response to a death is, there maybe were better ways to handle it, but I'm grading on a curve because of the Liam Neeson stuff right now. <laughs> And it's not like he's the only one who's ever done that. The King of Horror, Stephen King, did the same thing when he was almost killed by a drunk driver. So can't blame him too much for imitating the greats. We, we won't get into some of the ways that Stephen King is problematic. Oh, no. And I'm kind of sad that Brandon Lee can't really quite pull off the edginess. So as we were watching the movie, we've kind of came to this consensus that Brandon Lee is really playing two characters. He's playing Eric Draven, which he excels at. He God. really understands what's going on with Eric and what is motivating him. He has this soft, gentle sadness to him. Like, he doesn't really want to be here. He just wants to go somewhere soft and gentle, but he's been pulled back into this hard, violent world that he has to do something about. If I were to compare it to someone today, it'd be similar to, like, a Heath Ledger or, like, a Robert Pattinson. A lot like a Heath Ledger, honestly. Yes. However, whenever Brandon Lee is trying to edge it up and be this vigilante of the crow, he doesn't have the right energy. Suddenly... I heard a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Honestly, when the crow doesn't have lines, I think he does a decent job with the physicality of it. Oh, yeah. But the line delivery just is not there. It's weird. In Rapid Fire, also starring Brandon Lee, he kind of has that moody bad boy thing better. So not quite sure what was happening here. Let's go ahead and get the squickiness of the crow out of the way real quick. <laughs> 
Yeah. Because it, it's a much lesser degree than the mask somehow. During the attack, Shelley's also sexually assaulted by the various gang members. And the film does a acceptable job of not showing too much of it, not making it like lurid and... Titillating. Yeah. It's shocking and brutal. And while I think there are maybe more flashbacks to it than we certainly need, it does a decent job of recreating the experience of being triggered by something and having PTSD flashbacks. Yes, it does do that. But in doing so, it also means that people who have undergone similar experiences are very likely to have strong emotional reactions to the film. The apartment in question was very neon lit, whereas the movie has very little color. And so when those flashes come up, they feel like they don't fit in this world, which is pretty, you know. They feel alien. Yeah. I will also say this. I don't really think the assault is strictly needed for the narrative to take place. It could have just been a double murder. I get that it's part of the, like, you know, gritty, edgy, cruel world. And I get that, you it was there in the comic but yeah it really could have just been two murders the whole thing with the crow is that when someone has a lot of pain when they die they come back to right the wrongs and that makes it seem like eric's pain was greater than shelley's and i'm not here for that although the film is kind of trying to have its cake and eat it too because the way he's able to defeat top dollar is by feeding him shelley's pain from the 30 hours she spent in the icu before she died I respect them trying to give that final win to to Shelley and bringing that into the narrative. I think it works pretty well, but again, it's kind of, why did Eric come back if Shelley went through all this other stuff? The thing I do actually really like about the film, in the comic, it was a fairly random mugging. Their car was broken down and Mm -hmm. some guys showed up. Here, it's a hit, so they, they died for... A reason. And I'm not saying that, like, you know, they deserved or anything, God, no, but I like there's a tiny bit of agency that things are happening for a reason. It makes it, I don't know, feel a bit less pointlessly cruel. Yeah, it also endears you to Shelly and Eric, who we don't really get to spend that much time with, but we know that they died because they were doing the right thing. Yeah. And you could argue that that means the universe isn't just interested in pain, it's interested in pain of good people, which pushes it slightly closer to Noble Dark as opposed to Grim Dark. To break up the seriousness a little bit, there's a really great shot where when Eric first returns to the apartment after he dies, we enter kind of a fever dream of past and present, and we see him jump out through the window again, but then he catches himself on the railings and swings back in, and it's a cool, it's a resurrection thing. A really subtle way to imply that just through visuals. However, there are a lot of religious undertones throughout the film that it doesn't really know what to do with. It just kind of puts them there, and it's like, draw your own conclusions. (laughs) Which is a little frustrating. Like, there's a number of scenes with Eric in a cruciform pose. He gets shot in the hand at one point, and it looks like stigmata. The final battle takes place in a church. That's also kind of grandfathered in from the comics. I think it, I wish they'd gone with the other. We're going to put this in, and you make your own conclusions about it. Like, there's a page of the comics where it's just Eric looking sad in his apartment while they put the entire lyric of a song by The Cure in there. God, so 90s. Just amazing. We, we mentioned some of the cinematography that, that's going on. The film does really well on that front, especially its use of cuts to specifically draw comparisons and associations between things. Like there's this one shot where we get the crow flying overhead and then it cuts to the T-bird hood decal for uh, one of the gang members' car. 
it does a lot of little things like that that are just really solid. On the flip side, some gratuitousness of the villain's girlfriend slash sister being a sexy mystical Asian lady for no particular reason. And there's a scene where Sarah's mom is running away in her underwear and I just wrote down, ah, she boob tiddly across the room. Please let Darla wear a bra. Yes. I don't think she wears a bra for the entire film. She's in like three or four scenes in one of them. One of them, it makes sense for her to not be wearing a bra, but all of the other ones, it makes more sense for her to be wearing one than not. That said, I was kind of feeling it with the scene where she tries to make eggs and doesn't really know what she's doing but is trying. That that worked for me. Yeah, the, the small little redemption arc that Darla has uh, where she's trying to get clean of drugs after Eric lays on hands and sucks the heroin out of her veins. That's how that works, right? Again, religious undertones doesn't really do anything with them. And is, is trying to just be a better mom to Sarah. Uh, we haven't even talked about Albrecht, who I like a lot. Yeah, Albrecht is actually played by Ernie Hudson at this. I think one of my favorite scenes in the film is him and Eric just having a conversation in his apartment and trying to figure out what's going on. It's very tender and gentle. You okay? I saw her. I saw her through your eyes. You stayed with her the whole time. It's weird that there's a scene of very non-toxic masculinity in The Crow, but it's there. You get the sense that there are people who don't necessarily have a lot of hope about the world getting better, but that doesn't mean they're not gonna try. And I like that. Uh, yeah. And I like that Albrecht looks in on Sarah, but also gives her space. He doesn't try to make her not be a street kid. He just makes sure he's around as she needs him. Also, he brings up another thing. There's a lot of just incidental black characters in this film, which is not something you see a lot of in the 90s. We compare it to the mask which came out the same year there are two black characters freeze who we didn't even talk about he dies and kind of sets a lot of things in motion so black guy dies first mm -hmm. and then the other black character is the mayor both of whom are fairly incidental we don't even have the mayor written down on our character sheet. But here we have Albrecht, we have one of the gang members, Tintin. Who admittedly also is one of the first gang members to die. Not great. Yeah. We have a number of incidental black characters in some of the seedy clubs and bars, in the police force, as well as one of the gang leaders that Top Dollar has kind of called on to figure out what's going on and why his men are getting killed. There's no indication that Eric Drave is an Asian person in the comics, but he is here, and that's cool. They kind of whitewashed some of the gang members, but honestly, they weren't great portrayals in the comics, so I'm not super stressy about this yeah. one. It's, uh, oh boy, those fanatic accents. Yeah. We are not the right people to get into the moral issues of whitewashing characters that were harmful racial stereotypes. So we're just going to mention that that is the case and then move on. I do appreciate that this is not incredibly white Detroit. Yeah. Admittedly, there is the complicated thing where movies about people of color are more readily accepted as being a seedy crime world because of the way that Hollywood conceptualizes men of color. Things we don't know how to unpack. I do want to unpack how this movie, it's classified as a horror movie, like you find it on lists and things occasionally, and it definitely has vibes of a slasher without being quite a slasher. This could easily have been a slasher movie about people being hunted by the crow. It reminds me a lot of Jason Takes Manhattan and some of the Halloween movies where you 
have Michael in the city. Yeah, I can definitely see it being framed that way. A big reason it doesn't play that way is because we are rooting for the person that is on a rampage, and we understand that the rampage is to some extent justified. But without that context, it could easily not be the case. That said, I am 100% here for a slasher who just goes around fighting against gentrification. Although, kind of getting into the horror thing, one of the more gratuitous scenes in this is when the crow is interacting with the pawn shop owner and trying to get information. Yeah. It's relatively early on in the film, and Eric is still trying to figure shit out. But how much anger and how much he antagonizes the the pawn shop owner don't make sense. I'm like, sure, he he does business with the, the people who murdered him and his fiance, but it's not made terribly clear whether he knows that or not. I mean, I guess he does mention a bloodstain on something that Tintin is pawning, and he just kind of tries to not get involved and wash his hands of this, and it's like, yeah, I'm just doing my job. And on the way that Draven deals with him and burns down his shop and beats him up, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for what the character's motivations are. Disproportionate retribution? Yeah. He seems skeevy, but he seems like break a window skeevy, not blow up his place of work skeevy. Yeah. That scene's also in the comics, but that version of the pawn shop guy is way more antagonistic and tries to shoot the crow a few times, but again, the crow is invulnerable. I think that's the bit where she's like, All he wants is pain. Pain and hate. Yes, hate. But never fear. Fears for the enemy. Fear and bullets. Wow. I know, it's so good. I mean, in the movie, the pawn shop owner does shoot at Eric. Yeah, but Eric starts it, is what yes, I'm saying. Yes, that, that is true. And we're then, later on in the film, to kind of make up for it and reestablish who's the good guy here. The pawn shop owner then goes to Top Dollar and is giving in information about what exactly happened to his store. And Top Dollar gets that information after threatening him. And then, to reward him, takes a sword from the wall, stabs him in the throat. He's left there gurgling blood for a few seconds. Top Dollar gets too impatient to let this guy who has a sword sticking through his neck still, he just left it there, die. Fuck's sake, die, will you? And so he pulls out a gun and shoots him. None more goth. <laughs> so I wrote down at one point, I don't care about the villain, but I'm coming around on Top Dollar. He's an awful human being, but you need someone as over the top 90s edgelord to match with the crow here, and he achieves that. I don't mind the character. I don't care about his motivations. Oh, no. The way they work him into the plot is boring, and I don't care. Yeah. Literally everything else is much more compelling. I can't say that him having a coherent plan beyond money, cocaine, guns would have improved the narrative too much. So I don't know. Rock hard place. We mentioned Spawn, and this is kind of what Spawn could have been. This uses music a lot better. Yes. The music and the tone of the scene match each other really well. Yeah, it has a musical aesthetic that it uses incredibly well, and it works a lot better here than the Crystal Method works in Spawn. (laughs) Yeah. I think one last thing I want to talk about here. One of the reasons my opinion of Top Dollar had changed is during the climax. So during the climax, they figure out killing the crow will take away Eric's powers. And I really love that the film does that because it really makes the climax actually have stakes. It makes it so that, oh, 
Eric can actually lose here. He may not be able to avenge his and his fiance's deaths and get this horrible person off the streets and make his neighborhood safer. And everything that is awesome about the climax flows from there actually being stakes. Mm -hmm. They do a lot by giving Eric this really interesting internal state and him dealing with the trauma and then they make the crow interesting by taking away his powers at the end when he needs them the most right i will say i'm not super here for how micah just knows that for reasons that are unclear beyond she's a spooky asian lady i guess and she just knows these things yeah it would have been really easy to have a very short scene where she or anybody else consult a library or go online or they ask someone or just the bird gets knocking to a wall on accident and eric doesn't get up as fast uh, and it would have toned down on the weirdness with that character it is about that time i think it's time to make our final decision weirdly i am more interested in watching the crow again i'm right there with you coming into this week i had very strong fun memories of the mask and i had not before seen the crow and i was very concerned about how the crow was going to deal with its sexual assault theme but the mask literally has those same themes and deals with them much much worse so there's literally no reason not to move the crow forward over the mask as much as i love parts of the mask and i enjoy the comedy that's going on i think the crow is overall a much stronger film yeah and while there's definitely parts of the crow that i feel super not great about i also respect a lot of the ways they adapted the comic to a movie and a lot of the cinematography and music choices work really well they created a very strong work out of something that was kind of just 90s trash to be honest to be fair both of these comics were Uh, that's true both of these films elevated those rags yeah i don't want our awarding a win to the crow to excuse any of the problems i think it's a stronger film that has more to unpack that i want to get into yeah it's definitely going to be more interesting to talk about the next episode should also be interesting to talk about but for probably very different reasons somehow i feel like watchmen is almost more of a 90s dead lord movie than either of these are well we can thank Zack snyder for that In addition to watching Watchmen, we will also be watching Wanted, which is also gratuitous violence. That'll also finish off round one of our bracket. So if you're waiting to watch the movie until you know what's worth watching, well, you'll know soon. So if you want to make sure to catch our next episode finishing off round one of the bracket, you can make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Podbean, or Spotify. Until then, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Also, a special thanks to Daniel Na for agreeing to be the voice of the crow on short notice. Uh, yeah, hi. My name's Daniel. I will be reading for the part of the crow. You've probably heard him before on our episode on Big Hero 6 vs. Tarzan. And if you want to hear more of him, you can find him here. My name is Jake. Just Jake. I can't tell you my last name, or where I live, or even promise you Jake is my real first name. What I can tell you, what is absolutely true, is that they are here. Have you ever looked up at the night sky and wondered if there was alien life out there? Stop wondering. They're called Yurks. They're here on Earth, and they aren't friendly. The Yurks are parasites. They're slugs that crawl into your ear and wrap around your brain 
and take control of your body. Anyone could be controlled by a yerk. Your teacher? Your parents? You? Me and my five friends, Rachel, Cassie, Marco, Tobias, and Axe, are the only ones who have any chance of stopping the yerks. Because we have powers. The power to morph into any animal we can touch. We are the Animorphs. Hear our story every Friday on Audiomorphs, wherever podcasts are found.